The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics Podcast. Yeah. It's the end of July. July 31st, 2020. The boy Justin Robert Young. We got a humdinger of a show here for you. Uh, a, a bit of a potpourri. There's not really a dominant story right now. And so we're going to do a new segment called News Bits where we're going to go through some news. And then we're going to do a mailbag where you guys get to set the agenda. And boy, howdy, have I learned that uh, just because you think people are are not going to yell at you for your Cuomo take, boy, are they going to yell at you if you double down on your Cuomo take. So we got some Cuomo stands in the house. I will answer to them. Uh, but the real meat here, the big main event, is the debut of uh, uh, just a great friend in, in the podcasting world, and that is Molly Wood. Molly Wood has been a podcasting professional for years and years and years, starting with uh, Buzz Out Loud. She is currently at Marketplace, and she does the podcast Make Me Smart with Kai Rizdahl. She also does the It's a Thing podcast with PX3 contributor and guest host Tom Merritt, whom she did Buzz Out Loud with. But uh, uh, she has just a, a great, great, great knowledge and very insightful commentary on where we are with tech and antitrust. Uh, so we are going to go deep, deep on this antitrust stuff, uh, specifically Everything you need to know that maybe you had time to watch that five hour deposit or the five hour hearing. Maybe you're you're dialed in on tech. Maybe you're not. This is it. This is really all you need to know. We're we're gonna we're gonna wrap all of it up company by company. Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple. All of them have antitrust things that the government might come after them for. And we're going to give you the roadmap because this is going to be a thing that will be a, a political football going forward. Despite the fact that both sides don't like big tech and want to punish them, uh, there's more complicated stuff. And we'll, we'll talk about that as well. So that's coming up there a little bit later. But first, news. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. Turns out the grand opening, grand closing tour isn't just for America. No, now some of the countries that thought they were more in the clear, including Japan, Germany, and Australia, have experienced spikes in the virus. Australia recorded its its highest daily death total 
13, which compared to the U.S., not bad. Prime Minister Scott Morrison said a new lockdown is going to be in effect in the state of Victoria, which recorded 723 new cases. Japan has recorded as many uh, more cases than it did during its first wave in March and April. The government finds itself in the awkward position of now urging caution to limit the spread while promoting domestic travel to boost the economy. And Germany, rightly hailed for how it handled itself during the Italian and Spanish pandemic, has recorded 3,611 new infections and has led the country to impose new restrictions on traveling from Spain. News bits. Documents from a 2015 civil case against uh, Ghislaine Maxwell from one of her victims has now been unsealed. Amongst the documents uh, include details on how a teenager named Virginia Gouffre was recruited by Maxwell at the Mar-a-Lago Club, owned by Donald Trump, where Gouffre was a locker room attendant. She was then groomed to have sex with both Epstein and Maxwell, pimped out to powerful men, including Prince Andrew, Marvin Minsky, and Alan Dershowitz. She further says that she witnessed the exhaustive library of naked photos that Epstein kept of every woman that he had slept with, Epstein bragging that the youngest girls he'd slept with were 12-year-old French girls who were sent to him as a gift, the presence of Bill Clinton and former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson on Epstein's Caribbean island, and finally, that Epstein offered a mansion and monthly stipend to Virginia if she would have his baby. Part of the terms would be that she would only serve as the baby's caretaker as long as she was on good terms with Epstein. Should she fall out with the now-dead pedophile, she would forfeit the child to Maxwell and Epstein. Catch your news bits here. It's a hockey night in Pittsburgh, or at least it will be on Saturday. Jesus, we need a palate cleanser after that last one. Uh, the Penguins will meet with the Montreal Canadiens uh, to break down one of the key elements of the game. Pittsburgh's rush attacks have challenged the Habs' defense all year. Penn's attackers have regrouped, gathered speed, and managed to easily displace Montreal's 1-2-2-4 check to gain an offensive edge. As we all know, the 1-2-2-4 check is vulnerable to long feeds across the ice or drop passes that allow for attackers to strike with the runway, something that will be exploited by Sidney Crosby and Jake Gensel. Those become the main ingredients of the Pittsburgh rush against the Canadiens. Puck drops on Saturday. Look for a big series from Evgeny Malkin, Pens in five. News bits. While both Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders have done everything they could to mend fences publicly, it seems that things have not been quite as copacetic amongst their followers. 
a Democratic Party meeting that leaders hoped would project unity weeks ahead of the national convention instead broke out into a behind-the-scenes feud over corporate money and politics. At a virtual gathering of key communities for the Democratic National Convention, Bernie Sanders' allied members said that Joe Biden appointees called them children and made other rude comments in a breakout room where they talked privately, said Nina Turner, Sanders' former campaign co-chair who served on the meeting. It was not only disturbing, but disrespectful, disgusting, disturbing, unacceptable. There's no way to restore faith to the people who already suspected the Democratic Party is unfair. Meanwhile, a Biden official disputed what uh, Nina Turner said. Quote, this is a mischaracterization. There was a small group that was drowning out speakers, and this continued through a tribute to the late uh, Representative John Lewis. They were then asked to stop by both Sanders and Biden delegates, and the overwhelming takeaway of this meeting was that the five resolutions were passed unanimously as a result of the hard work of the Sanders and Biden teams. Well, you know, you can keep singing that song for unity, but obviously there are wounds here that go deeper than this particular election, and I think deeper than Bernie Sanders. We have not seen the end of this progressive movement within the Democratic Party, and I don't think that there's anything that we have seen since Sanders dropped out that seems to be any kind of give back for at least what they care about, what those progressives care about. Well, you can only ignore it for so long. News bits. And finally, enhanced unemployment benefits are set to expire as congressional negotiators continue to be deadlocked over coronavirus relief. That enhanced uh, benefit was $600 a week in unemployment insurance that Congress provided in late March. That goes away tonight, Friday the 31st at midnight. Uh, Congress was so far apart. By the way, so, so they wound up, here's, here was the plan. The plan was nothing gets done until the 11th hour anyway. So let's not let a plan get crucified for a few months. This is the thought, right? I'm not saying it's a smart idea. I'm saying it was their idea. Nothing gets done until the 11th hour. So let's introduce our plan and the ninth hour. And then because this is such a perilous cliff that seemingly all of Congress will get blamed for, at a certain point, everyone's got to get to the table and figure it out. But Cocaine Mitch couldn't get anything that uh, was was even copacetic for his whole party. The Democrats didn't even touch it. And now they're going to go back to doing what they do best. Blaming someone else for why they didn't do their job. Oh, man. What a beautiful, what a beautiful world. Oh, and they went off for a three-day weekend. They're like, well, obviously it's other people's fault so much. I'm going to have to take a relaxing vacation. I'm going to have to kick back. Oh, geez. I know we just got back from vacation, but like, I I, I feel like I've been uh, so exert, exerting myself so much. 
Ah, God, I hit that. Yeah, God, I hit the links on a Friday. Just clear my mind, man. You know? Poor babies. Meanwhile, you know, uh, the uh, economy basically suffered its greatest contraction in five years. <laughs> that th Those are the reports. Uh, today, our Q2 massive economic contraction, which we expected, right? Because, you know, Q1 at least had a portion of that humming economy. Q2, all Rona, all vid, right? Uh, oh, oh, and also unemployment claims went up for the second week in a row after a lot of downturn. Now up, upturn. No, but you guys go ahead and figure that out, Congress. Man, God, it's got to be hard. Got to be hard to be a congressman. All right, that's it for the bits. Politics they ask me, did I go deep in my bag? And I tell them, I showed it. I got to say, each and every week, the mailbag gets spicier. We're going to open it right now. You can be a part of it. Uh, uh, send whatever you want to the young American at gmail.com it's where we uh, can get some feedback on on stuff or you can slam me for terrible takes whatever we begin with glenn uh, about the meme theory of our shattered monoculture glenn writes i largely think andrew heaton had it correct on his podcast when he portrayed this stuff as various forms of cultural authoritarians versus pluralists i think that the former are trying to keep our pangea together so they can conquer it, so to speak. And the latter want something truly diverse so they can find and continue to have their own space. That's a very good point, Glenn. I don't have to send that to, uh, to Eaton. Gabe writes, I wish you'd asked your guest uh, on uh, liability immunity, who could be behind such a push? Could it be the liability insurance industry? Your guest downplayed immunity because many businesses have liability insurance. But I bet those insurance providers have powerful lobbyists that aren't looking forward to defending claims against their policyholders. You know, something to look into. All right. Now, I should have probably known this was coming, but I, I made a comment that Andrew Cuomo has done the worst job of any governor. And I didn't get any emails. But I got some Twitter flack, and then I commented on it in the mailbag, which, of course, has brought email. So this will be the last week where we talk about it, because I don't want to keep circling around the same points over and over and over again. But I do want to be fair for the diversity of opinion. Brad writes, while it's valid to rank state responses to COVID by total deaths and deaths per capita, one must consider exposure to the virus to get a full picture. In other words... Who were these spreaders and who were the spreaders when the pandemic arrived in the U.S.? As we all know, the virus started in China, spread to Europe with Italy getting hit hard, and then spread to the U.S. from both China and Europe. It looks like, uh, it, sorry, if one looks at the international travel destinations, it's clear the virus got to California and the West Coast mainly via China, whereas the eastern seaboard, with New York City being the hub, got the virus from Europe. The federal government shut down uh, travel from China on January 31st, but waited until March 11th, allowing hundreds of thousands of European travelers into the East Coast, many potentially carrying the virus. 
So the five states with the most deaths per million in population are New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Rhode Island. Note the geographic proximity on those states. What about the five states with the lowest per capita deaths? Hawaii, Alaska, Montana, Wyoming, West Virginia. Not exactly prime destinations for European or Chinese business folks and tourists. Let's try an analogy. At the height of the Vietnam War, a radio op uh, operator, New Yorker in this case, has had a five-second life expectancy during combat. For those behind a desk, Alaska has a very low mortality rate. A bit hyperbolic, but you get the point. What I find disheartening is states getting hit hard now, which had time to prepare and learn from what happened in New York. Sadly, that did not happen. Very valid points. Again, I'm always for context, but when I make my point, which is let's look at deaths. And also, again, it's not a surprise that there's a lot of European tourists into New York. They build an industry around it. So if anybody should know, it should be local and state officials for New York. At least that's my opinion. Clay writes, Yes, population density matters. Deaths per capita matter. And we will see, unfortunately, many more deaths soon in the South and Sun Belt because they lag a lot. Also, they are happening now when we know more how to treat it. New York was unprepared because it happened first in the United States. Still, they made bad decisions, but at least they had an excuse. I mean, maybe. Depends. Depends. Like, California was hit before New York. Seattle was hit before New York. New York, obviously, is a big problem. But again, not like that snuck up on the government there. John writes, I was listening to the podcast where you tried to paint the governor of New York as the worst in the country. Again, you use the death numbers as proof. This is a horrible comparison because New York deaths happened before we knew how to treat the disease, before we even knew which drugs to use. Also, Florida just passed New York in COVID-19 cases, and they were working really hard to hide them. That said, New York did a horrible job, but they changed, got help, and dug out. Now they are doing a good job. So maybe say New York's governor had the worst reaction, but at least the state started getting better. All it took was 30,000 dead. They did. They rebounded. I know, I'll, I'll admit it. Yeah, no, they're doing, they're doing a good job now. Took 30000 to die. You know, that's a heavy cost for doing things well. Infected an entire region. But, yes, they are doing well now. Yes. And Florida would not have passed New York in COVID-19 cases if we were doing eighty or 800,000 tests a day during the beginning of, of, of the New York outbreak. I feel pretty confident saying that. Ben writes, I was listening to the latest PX theory where you were doubling down on your Cuomo take as the worst governor response, and I couldn't help but notice that you missed the most important data point when making that call. New York State was one of the earliest hotspots in the virus, in addition to Seattle and a few other major ports of entry, including San Jose, which is really important thing to take note of. The timing is the data point you missed. COVID-19 and other viruses of its nature tend to start out early in their spreads as much more deadly, but less transmissible versions, and then through mutations every two weeks or so become less deadly and more transmissible. 
There are many reasons why this is normally tied, uh, uh, normally the trend for viruses like this one, but the main one is this. If it kills everyone before it can spread it, then it normally dies on its own. The current virus variant that is much more easily transmissible, but much less deadly, is a result of this phenomenon. If you don't believe me, check out Science Versus Podcast, and they have several episodes of this virus tendency. I'm not saying Cuomo did a good job, just that you need to take this data point into consideration. And indeed, I will, and have. And I will say, uh, uh, again, this is, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm always here for context. I'm always here for context. And if, if the point is that Cuomo didn't do a great job before and there are explainers for it, that's fine. But if we're looking at the scoreboard, he's still up by a lot while other governors are not doing a great job. And that matters. I mean, at least it's the only thing in this crazy world that we live in. We got to have some kind of, of things that we judge by. You know, it can't all be subjective. Mike writes, I know mentioning the F word, you torpedo a lot of cross the aisle discussion. But it would be interesting to hear your thoughts on dot, dot, dot. Now, before I read what the F word is, all you know is that because I'm reading this and I'm like, oh, geez, I don't even know. I don't even know if I should continue reading this. All right, here we go. It'd be, I'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on how the president's actions line up with Umberto Eco's features of fascism and how this is uh, clearly read differently by Blue Team Red Team, since we all love to invoke the F word against the opposition. Man, better F word than I thought. I know it personally worries me, but I'd appreciate your take. All right, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to go through Umberto Eco's 14 features of fascism, and I'm going to make the argument on either side. Number one, the cult of tradition. Well, obviously, the conservatives are all about making America great again, right? Let's go back to the old days. We are forever scarred the further we turn away from God's light. A heteronormative, religious culture for which they continue to shove down our throats. And the liberals, on the other hand, all they do is pine for the days when they were able to get away with everything forever. When they were, when, when they were in control of the media before social media, pre-drudge, pre-Twitter, pre-Facebook, hell, pre-AM radio. When all it took was a little personal phone call between the powers that be in uh, the liberal elite and their uh, media allies, and they were able to totally control everything. That's the tradition that they long for. A rejection of modernism is number two. Which, of course, I mean, need I say more exactly? Conservatives be conservatizing. They reject anything that might come uh, of from any kind of progress. And all the liberals do is prefer to not even act like there has been evolution on, on conservative thought. Indeed, it is the liberal deities plugged into the top of their power structure like Harvey Weinstein who fought tooth and nail against the Me Too movement. Number three, the cult of actions for action's sake. 
well, obviously these conservatives, these Trump fans, all they want to do is hunt down enemies and smear them. They want to make their their memes uh, about about all these uh, 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 things that are homophobic and uh, Islamophobic and transphobic. They are the the bringing rise, bringing rise to the worst parts of our society just because they can. And these liberals, need I say more? Cancel culture, action for action's sake. We need to deplatform. We need to unmask. We need to remove the voice of anybody that we disagree with simply so we can all be seen doing a thing. Number four, disagreement is treason. Yeah, I mean, this one's easy. The conservatives fall in line. They are lockstep. If you don't agree with what they have to say and you can't performatively show that you are indeed the most sexist, homophobic, and racist, then you are a cuck, snowflake libtard. And these liberals can't even keep on the same side. They got so bored canceling people on the right because the right didn't care that now they have to start canceling each other. Disagreement for them indeed is treason. Number five, fear of difference. These conservatives can't stand the idea that the world is changing. They can't stand the idea that people that were marginalized now have rights. And these liberals can't understand that their leaders have led them astray. They are so, so afraid of taking a look at a different way of life that they will mark lockstep behind anybody as long as they are able to sufficiently fearmonger that there is any other way of looking at the world. They are truly afraid of difference. Number six, appeal to social frustration. The conservatives found their army with a bunch of pud pulling incel basement dwellers who were upset because the white man wasn't on top anymore. Pure and simple. They channeled the anger of white supremacy in decline and they, and they got them all to the voting booth. And don't get me started on the liberals. The appeal to social frustration, why everything that goes wrong is all of a sudden all about Mitch McConnell or Donald Trump. There's no element of society that can't be traced back to the fact that they ran a crappy candidate in 2016. The idea that the marginalized black community is told that there's only one way to salvation and that's at the voting booth by hitting the Democratic button when to this point, Donald Trump passed criminal justice reform that Obama never could and thanks to complete lack of anything in Congress, Donald Trump has led the way in police reform. Number seven, obsession with a plot. I mean, how could it be more obvious what these conservatives are doing? They have slowly but surely eroded rights until they could install the strong man they've all secretly wanted in their, in their hearts for all these feckless wingtips, these boffins, they really wanted what they got with Trump, a big, puffy dictator. And everything that Donald Trump is doing is there to ensure that he has maximum, maximum uh, control, and he's never going to give it up. Oh, these liberals, though, 
these liberals, the way that they have latched on from the first moment that their campaign screwed up in 2016, they click on a phishing email, they get embarrassed, their skeletons are out of the closet, and from that moment on, it is Russia. Everything is Russia. Fake news is Russia. There is uh, 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 this whatever Facebook ad buying spree the GRU was doing now all of a sudden becomes a international plot between Donald Trump and Putin. Obsessed with this plot. Number eight, the enemy is both strong and weak. These conservatives, I can't believe that they love this idiot, Donald Trump. Can't draw his own name if he got 14 tries and 15 crayons. I mean, he's also a dangerous madman that is so cruel. He is intentionally inflicting cruelty on us. The cruelty is the point, and he knows what buttons to press. He's very stupid. And these liberals, oh, they obsess over their heroes. The empty-headed, moronic AOC. Basically just a a barmaid who's really going to lead the country to socialism. She's really going to. She's so dangerous. She, she, She knows how to push everybody's buttons. She's an idiot. Number nine, pacifism is trafficking with the enemy. If you're not fighting, if you're not in the streets, you are part of the problem. If you do not post this hashtag, then you are standing with the other side. If you do not post this black uh, uh, box on your Instagram, then it's very telling. It's just very telling exactly what you are about. And meanwhile, all these cucks that used to run the Republican Party if, if you are not out here actually fighting for somebody that wins, somebody that actually put Republicans into office, then honestly, get out of here. We don't need you. We don't need, uh, we don't, we, it, it's your old, old balls. Number 10, contempt is for the weak. Want to know what almost bothers me more than the conservatives? It's these Aaron Sorkin liberals These Aaron Sorkin liberals that all they want to do is gasp and they want to chase this weird version of uh, a fantasy where everybody can get along. No, the conservatives are evil and you treat them like they are evil. And these liberals, oh, you want to know what? High art for the treasonous rhinos of the Republican Party, the Lincoln Project. Oh, just delighting all their liberal best friends because they dare say, oh, Trump won and he's not who I like. Contempt is weakness. Number 11, everyone is educated to become a hero. This is your time, liberals. Now we can all stand up. We can all change the world, finally, once and for all. And and conservatives, this is our time. Finally, we have a champion that'll fight for what we want. 12. Machismo and weaponry. You know, the one thing that I really like about Joe Biden is that he he's not afraid of Donald Trump. 
He's not afraid of Donald Trump. He's going to look Donald Trump right in the eye and he's going to tell him exactly what we've all been saying about him for the last four years. And that's what I love about Trump. Trump's going to look Biden right in the eyes and he's going to be like a man. He's going to really talk to him the way we've wanted to talk to these liberal politicians forever. Number 13, selective populism. You want to know who the real populists are? The real populists are the union workers. The real populists are the marginalized communities. The real populists are those that have been put under the boot heel of a system for which was never set up for them. They are the grist of capitalism. They are the true populists. I mean, these liberals want to define exactly who their populists are, but we know because they went to the polls in 2016 that the real people that have been hurt by these disastrous trade policies of the Democrats for the past 20 years, they're the populists. They're the ones that are really making their voice heard. And number 14, your fascism speaks newspeak. The issue we have now is the alt-right. The microaggressions of cultural imperialism are here with us every day. And these liberals, don't get me started. Don't get me started. These pedo clown world snowflakes with their safe spaces, oh, always complaining about being triggered. Well, facts don't care about feelings. Go complain about it to your wife's boyfriend. And there we go. That has been my presentation of Umberto Eco's 14 Faces of Fascism from both the left and right perspective. I did most of that in one take, and I'm now legitimately terrified how easy it was. If you would like to send me an email, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. We're going to keep this one short today. Thank you to everybody who supports us. Uh, if, if you are on the team, a dollar, lowest level, our big tent tier, then you get the custom RSS feed. You get the episodes just a touch early because Patreon's RSS feeds go faster than Apple and Spotify's. If you're at the $3 tier, you're getting bonus content. And if I'm right, and there's a VP announcement on Saturday, that means Monday is when you're going to get my first takes. The $10 tier, you get your name read at the very, very end of the show. And then the donor class, mwah, chef's kiss for the people that, uh, you know, put that kind of cash in your boy's pocket. Continue to make this program even better. We got some fun projects coming up in the next few weeks. We're probably going to do a big thing on school openings because we actually have a couple interviews about that. Um, so thank you. That's it. Just thank you. Thank you for being amazing. Our guest today making her debut on the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast is, oh, what a treat, Molly Wood. She is the host of Make Me Smart with Kai Rizdahl. That's a podcast. She is also a host on Marketplace, and she does another podcast called It's a Thing with your friend and mine, 
Tom Merritt. We're going to talk all about these tech hearings over the week and uh, where they might go from here. But let's welcome her to the show first. Welcome to the show, Molly. Thank you. Good to be here, Justin. All right. Well, uh, it is a long time coming for you to be on here. And uh, I I think we have the perfect setup for this because not only do we have the gigantic uh, hearing yesterday or I guess on on Wednesday by the time that people hear this on Friday, but also uh, we have a roadmap now to see what we are going uh, where we're going to go with some of the issues that were brought up. At the hearing. So we'll start with the event itself. What were your takeaways from the marathon all-star antitrust tech hearing? I know. <laughs> We've been saying uh, on the show that it was, it was a real Gilded Age kind of experience where you had the heads of the four big trusts come on, the richest men in the world, the robber barons of our time. Um I thought a couple things. One, clearly two separate hearings happened, right? There was the one about speech. Well, yeah, yeah. That's, and that, then that, 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 that is, that is day rigor these days, right? Where, uh, yeah. where everybody, it, it kind of feels like, and, and this was way more on display uh, with the bar hearing that happened the day before, but yes. uh, everybody, you know, the whoever they're talking to is kind of their own little Instagram museum, where like they just get to take whatever picture they want in front of the prop and then we can move on. Right. But I thought, but given that, and given that we know that that is just how it works with congressional hearings, I was, I have to say, fairly impressed with some of the questioning during this hearing. I really thought there were specific questions about business plans, right? There were specific questions about, do you Amazon access and use seller data to create your own products. Do you Google, did you Google go back on your promise that you wouldn't integrate double click with personal uh, profiles? Yeah. Like I thought that as far as questioning by Congress went, it was pretty good and pretty specific. And we even got new information, new documents and emails, or at least wind of new documents and emails that exist in which it was very clear that Mark Zuckerberg knew exactly that he would be neutralizing a competitor when they purchased Instagram. Like there, there was some actual news that came out of it. Yeah. You know, if anything, I kind of thought that there should have been multiple hearings. Because I think that Google and Facebook specifically, you could probably pair up because both of them are conversations about advertising and and the related issues. For Facebook, it's more eliminating competition. For Google, it's more how they integrated the uh, other elements of the online ad market when it was nascent then. Now it is dominant. Uh, Amazon should be its own hearing because that's like that's a whole separate other element of like we run the mall but also we make products and also we decide who's in the mall and who's not and we might just drive you out of it uh and then apples is is also kind of different it's protecting their own web services and 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 their price and percentage on what it costs to be in there uh it it, i mean i guess is it only one thing just because it's going to draw more eyeballs if four ceos are there instead of just two or one I guess so. I was honestly trying to figure that out. If if it was literally like a weird ratings play for Congress, because otherwise you're right, it makes no sense. The only thing these companies ultimately have in common is that they're big. Yeah. 
Like they, they have really very different, like, sure, you could put Google and Facebook together, but you also have, and, and sure they have, they each have sort of anti-competitive acquisitions. They have some version of advertising. They have data collection and the use of data as a massive competitive advantage, but they're still pretty different. And at the end of the day, each one of them to really dig into, and frankly, to dig into the very long litany of anti-competitive behavior that each company has engaged in would take a day each. Oh, I mean, yeah. nobody, you don't even have time to talk about to Amazon about cloud services. Like if Amazon can come to a hearing like that and get away with only talking about online retail and never once talk about how it hosts all of its competition and could potentially just peek right into the <laughs> secrets of Netflix, like that's a win. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's start with Google because that seems to be the one that we are probably going to see action on uh, sooner. There, even in the bar hearing, there was an indication that we might see an antitrust suit from uh, from the government to Google before August, or, or maybe po possibly even around August, so this month coming up. Uh, what do mm -hmm. we know about what the government is looking into Google for there? That one basically is the digital advertising business that we talked about, and then the the general dominance. And this is almost in some ways the easiest one to fit through the filter of existing antitrust law, because existing antitrust law is basically like, do you own the market? And yeah. does your ownership of the market allow you to engage in anti-competitive behavior that results in a consumer harm? And in some ways, Google is sort of the easiest to tackle because it has 90% of online searches in the United States. <laughs> and, and let's actually lay that out since we are talking to a, a political audience and not necessarily a tech audience. Uh, the, the issue with uh, online advertising, and this is, you know, for, for everything that you want to hear about Google, and of course they're Alphabet now and they do a million different things and they uh, have a, a bunch of different projects the way that that company runs is online advertising. That is the goose that laid the golden egg forever. And what they figured out was that when you're searching, you could not only get ads, but also buy ads piecemeal. That if you only have a dollar to run an ad, Google will take that dollar, provided that you only want to buy one uh, a search listing. It revolutionized advertising in general. And at the point that they made some of the acquisitions they made, this was a portion of the ad industry it is now the ad industry. <laughs> like there yep. is, you know, the age of television and magazines and billboards and everything that used to be the wide, gigantic mosaic of advertising now pales in comparison to what Google does. So from that position is how late is the government to showing up to uh, Google with online advertising and saying, hey, you're in a dominant position. Let's investigate what you've done. I mean, I think if you ask any uh, regulator in Europe, they would tell you 20, 30 years. I mean, maybe <laughs> Google hasn't been around for 30 years, well, but sure, as sure. soon as Google that, bought DoubleClick. On, on European time, like the Euros, the, they, 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 they jump first. They, they, they shoot first and aim later when it comes right. to antitrust. They are always so on in, top of it. On European time, we're definitely minimum a decade late into yes. looking into Google's practices. Google at this point, I mean, like you said, 90% or more 
the, like the vast, vast majority of Google's revenue comes from advertising it between Google and Facebook. They own, I think 70%, 70 to 80% of the entire digital advertising market. So there's a real question about whether advertisers have anywhere to go. Then there's a question about whether Google prioritizes its own products in search. And then as a result causes other companies to get less views of their own therefore resulting in less revenue, but also have fewer ads placed against them. So they get less advertising revenue and fewer eyeballs. And advertisers themselves are in a position where they may not have as many choices and then Google sets the prices. And really at the cornerstone of existing antitrust law, and again, this is an open question, and I think regulators are trying to figure out if antitrust law is gonna need to be altered in some way to deal with a company like Facebook whose product is free. Yeah. There's no consumer harm with respect to pricing, but there may be consumer harm in the form of mm, the death of democracy, just as one example. <laughs> um, so Google is just cleaner. It's cleaner to come at them from that view, from that standpoint. And then there's also, there's a data argument around that too, which is that part of Google's anti-competitive behavior, which is that it owns every part of this advertising ecosystem, right? Like you might be familiar with that whole, the vertical integration in the eyeglasses industry, how they own like the lens makers and yeah. the frame makers and the doctors and the prescriptions and the everything like that. That's basically Google when it comes to online advertising. They control all of the parts and via algorithm, they control what you see when, when you search things. Yeah, and, and so not only is it now for Google, that you see the ads that they are selling in the search, but also they are the ads that follow you around the internet. They are the dominant form for that. Like they, they also, yep. they are selling everything. And then of course YouTube and stuff like that, but they own that. Uh, uh, and they have so much data on you yeah. that they can precisely target ads and promise precise targeting that anybody who's not Facebook cannot promise. So there we go. All right. So, so now the idea is also, because they're in this dominant position, because there's nowhere else to go, the idea that even though Google revolutionized and got to this dominant position by offering a cheaper and more agile solution for advertisers, that now even those prices, you, you can't guarantee that they're not anti-competitive because they are so dominant. Yep, right. exactly. And it's a giant black box and so no one really knows. <laughs> yes. And then there's also the fact that nobody knows how. It so works. there's that that yeah. part too. Nobody knows how it works. Uh, all right. So that <laughs> so then let's so that is something that is fairly clean and we might uh, uh see action on sooner rather than later. Facebook, let's move on to because a similar problem mm -hmm. uh in that they are a dominant ad seller, but also a different product in that Facebook is a walled garden. So you come into Facebook and you see Facebook ads there and then in the other assorted apps that they own, where might Facebook see the biggest uh, uh, crackdown from the government? Yeah, I mean, honestly, this to me is the trickiest one because there is definitely a lot to say about Facebook <laughs> and its anti-competitive behavior. If antitrust law relied only on determining whether a company was anti-competitive, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg essentially admitted himself during the hearings that like, yes, we absolutely copy the competition. 
well, he didn't yeah. admit it as clearly as everybody knows. Well, I mean, yeah, because they <laughs> because literally as soon as something gets popular, Facebook rolls out their GoBots version, and then it usually dies five seconds afterward. But they they sure right. try. They sure try. And in the case of stories, for example, it yeah. sort of died on Facebook, but it took off like crazy on Instagram and is a whole huge level of revenue for them now. And even a failure on Facebook, like Facebook stories, I don't even know if you knew that existed, but apparently it does and did. It was a failed product that had 300 million users. Yeah. Because that's how big Facebook is. I, I, um, I know it only because for whatever reason, it's linked to my Instagram and so I will get comments when I post an Instagram story on Facebook, not realizing that it is now showing up as a Facebook story. Oh, no. How embarrassing. I know. I know. <laughs> uh, so the, the case against Facebook is that they quash competition. The question about that is what the harm is. Um, but I think that if you are looking at a company that gets rid of that ruthlessly copies and or buys up the competition, there's no question, right? That's a that again is a fairly straightforward case. So one of the, one of the emails that came out, that. yeah, one of the emails that came out yesterday, and this I think was after the hearing, was an internal Facebook email discussing the acquisition of Instagram, which to this point has probably proven to be their most fruitful acquisition, even though at the time it was kind of tittered at <laughs> that they paid a billion dollars for the photo app. But right. uh, now it is intensely uh, uh, popular and it was a good move for them. But in internal emails, Zuckerberg explains in, you know, to uh, I think it's his legal counsel that the reason why they need to get it is so they can effectively say ahead of uh, any competition that buying other smaller social networks that are exploding effectively keeps anybody else as a startup from getting to scale, and that's the real key, with any of these kinds of ideas. And that, yep. to me, and then, of course, he follows it up with another email, uh, uh, assuredly because somebody ran into his office and just said, you just admitted <laughs> to anti-competitive behavior, and he emails, yep. by the way, I'm certainly not talking about anti-competitive behavior here, so if you think that, think again. To be clear, it is not just to neutralize the competition, it is also to, yeah. So Instagram, unquestionably, and those were the new documents that came out, WhatsApp, I think, is an, is an acquisition that also sure. really yeah. can't be overlooked because it gave them such global uh, awareness and a global foothold. And the, the antitrust argument there, like as lawyers try to figure out what the harm is, and you actually heard almost all of these companies say in some form, like, listen, our consumers love us. Yeah. Maybe Facebook can't say that wholeheartedly about, you know, big blue right now, but when it comes to Instagram and WhatsApp, they're like, people love us. There's no harm here. So part of the argument is Facebook uh, killed the competition with these acquisitions, became the dominant social media empire throughout the world. And then as a result, because there was no competition and they had all of this consumer lock-in, basically just started treating people crappier and crappier. All of a sudden, privacy was less important. The protections for consumers were less important, which they had previously promised, right? We're taking care of your data. It's private. It's about you and your friends. 
pretty soon it became about a news feed that showed everybody what you were doing all the time. Then it allowed apps and other companies to plug in up to and including Cambridge Analytica and Harvest Data Wholesale. Yeah. And that the consumer harm could be proven with respect to the carelessness in which they the carelessness that they applied to our information and us as consumers because they could. Yeah. They didn't have to care that we were going to go somewhere else because we weren't. And and then also, despite the fact that Facebook is indeed a walled garden, the Facebook pixel, which is standard on, on websites these days, uh, uh, makes a very sweet deal between the website and Facebook that you give Facebook all the data of the people that are coming to your website and Facebook will give you data back on exactly how you can better optimize your business via their gigantic treasure trove, which now plugs them into the world's data. Like, yep. like even if you're not on Facebook, Facebook has a profile of you, you know, person XXY. Yep. Exactly. And it doesn't really even matter, apparently, if you use Facebook. No. I mean, I think if there were going to be antitrust law 2.0, and I think there was there were some hints at this in this hearing. Yeah. There is a real question about the use of data, the collection of data, data as an advantage and a competitive advantage that right now is not part of our laws or regulations in a meaningful way, but potentially could be because that is a huge deal. If you know everything about everyone, yeah, you lock in advertisers, you lock in consumers and you have the ability. And this is where like the data conversation gets a little creepy, but what people are realizing is that you can actually use data to create consumer behavior, to manipulate consumers in the direction that you want them to go Yeah, with the right targeted advertising and messaging and, then things just get a little well, you know. <laughs> and we should talk we should just talk about whether we're cool with that. Sure. Legally. Yeah. Well, and and, and I think that that's we're going to I mean, well, I I would I would like to think that there is a bipartisan appetite for that kind of stuff, uh but as we saw with police reform, uh you can never you can never truly say that there is any one thing uh, uh, even when both sides are submitting versions of it that will actually get happened because LOL Congress. Uh, These are great American companies, Justin, that just happen to hate conservatives, but are also examples of American innovation in action. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. What a tangled web we weave. Uh, uh, uh-huh. So, yeah, so that that is the Facebook issue now. Uh, and And certainly it would seem that Zuck has separated himself from the pack as being the kind of Silicon Valley mascot? Would you say that that he is more than Sundar Pichai or even Bezos or, or, or Tim Cook, that when people think of like, oh, we're going to let these guys run the world, the, the these guys is Zuckerberg? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think Zuckerberg is sort of the, the avatar of the tech CEO who wants to be bigger than a government yeah, and just doesn't care. And look, I mean, I'm not saying there's nothing to that argument. It doesn't really have to. <laughs> it is, it is very, very nineties Gates vibes, very nineties yep. Gates vibes uh, to, to the, the idea of, of Zuckerberg, which I mean, I don't know, maybe he'll, maybe he'll pretend to run for president again and have lunch with the poors. Um, 
let's move on to Amazon because yep. they, as you mentioned, have a buffet of different issues that people might be able to look into because unlike Google, unlike Facebook, and unlike Apple, they are very diversified in how they make their money. But it seems like the most cut and dry thing that people are looking at are is the store, which has mm-hmm. garnered anti-competitive cl- claims for years and years and years. But uh, what would be the easiest way to lay that out for people that have uh, not followed this? Yeah, I mean, the easiest, and, and again, this is actually a pretty straightforward anti-competition case because what happens on the Amazon store is that Amazon doesn't sell all the things, right? There are third-party sellers. Sometimes you order something and it's shipped by Computer Guide 2022, fulfilled by Amazon. And Computer Guide 2022 is a third-party seller. So Amazon has all of these people selling things on its platform, and the accusation is that what Amazon essentially does is look at what's happening on its store, potentially look, and this is the, this would be the really bad part, potentially look at the data, who's buying what, where they are, and how much they're spending with these third-party sellers, and then turn around and use that information to create its own products. So Amazon has its own brands, lots of them, and not all of them are labeled Amazon. You've probably seen Amazon Basics batteries and you know, HDMI cables and things like that. But there are also like, there's, there are a couple of other brands, like I'm trying to look up cause I can't remember what the names are, but there's like a brand where they sell sheets and light bulbs. And they sort of determine that there are these certain categories of things that sell the best. It doesn't look good for them that they gave them like secret names, no. like, <laughs> you know, awesome sheets town, yeah. or whatever these other brands were. And so the claim is, Amazon unfairly used all of this data that gets because if you are a small business with an who doesn't, you know, have a robust e-commerce presence and who does because the only e-commerce presence these days is mm, Amazon. Yep. You sell on Amazon. And so the accu- accusation is that Amazon gives these sellers unfair terms and then steals their data to rip off their products. And and even one step further, the you know, when, when we had the uh, card games uh, and we were independent sellers, we you can ship your products to the Amazon warehouses for a minimal. I mean, it's I, I think it may even be free. And then as long as it's selling at enough of a clip, you never pay storage. They will keep it there. They will distribute it amongst their own warehouses so they can maintain prime uh, uh, delivery. So the, somebody can buy it and get it within two days. But if you sell enough, then Amazon gives you an email and they say, hey, let's buy X amount of these from you. So now Amazon's acting like a traditional wholesaler where they are Mm -hmm. buying X and coming there. But now let's say it sells really, 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 really well. And Amazon loves it so much that they want to make the Amazon version of what my product is. Now, not only are they creating a competitor and they know the price and they know who's buying it and they know probably more uh, analytics of who's hovering over the uh, buy button and then goes away. But also they can cancel the contract of what they're buying from me. So they immediately take away the money. And that is all to this point from the complaints that have, have come out publicly, things that have happened. Yeah. 
And the difference between, you know, I had people tweet me and say Kroger's does does this and Costco does it with Kirkland. I buy Kirkland sheets, for example. Sure. Yeah. Um, those are really good sheets. I'm just saying. Oh, yeah. Um, the difference is the data. Yes. And that, I think, is what we come and, – and the idea of how much data Amazon is able to access says that it accesses and how much it does do that in secret. Because when you really can get granular about, like you said, the buy button or the marketing or how much shipping costs, you have a much bigger advantage than just Costco being like, people like to buy sheets and wine. And I'm not saying they don't have any data, but it's not like this. Yeah, and, and also a Costco – large though it might be, has a limited floor space. Uh, Amazon has infinite floor space, you know, so like right. the, the problem multiplies by that much more. Uh, uh, you mentioned AWS. And, and for those of you who are not aware, AWS, uh, a similar product to what uh, Google has with uh, uh, their server space and uh, Microsoft has with Azure. Basically, every website that you go on runs on much in the same way a city is built on cement. The internet is built on server space. So everything that you do at some point comes off cloud servers from one of these major players. The biggest player is AWS. How much of the internet is run on Amazon servers, Molly? Yeah, I mean, I think that we are to the point where there is almost nothing that you do online that doesn't touch Amazon in some way. Yeah. And that's not because Amazon hosts everything but it's because it hosts enough things that because it's all an interconnected web, it's somehow feeds back to AWS in some way. It hosts some of the biggest sites you know, Twitter, the New York Times, Netflix, like its own competitors. When there isn't when you know there when there's an AWS outage, yeah, you feel it all over the internet. And it's and Amazon does not, I should be clear, they are the market leader. It's not a dominant position. No. Like they've got 40% and then Microsoft and Google have another combined 60%. Um, but Amazon is easily the biggest player. It's a huge part of their business. And although it is not neatly an antitrust question, it is a competition question without a doubt. I mean, it's a competition question for all of them. I think nobody ever really thinks about the fact that the vast, vast, vast majority of the internet infrastructure at this point is in fact controlled by and is there's a gatekeeping effect from three private companies. And at no point do we have regulations around, I think I wrote about it a few months ago and I said, we need to start thinking about cloud neutrality. There aren't yeah. rules in law that say Amazon, Amazon can't peek at Netflix's data. I'm certainly in no way trying to say that they are, but like, I would. How do we know? Yeah. Yeah. How do we know? If you really wanted a competitive competitive advantage over somebody who is in the same business as you, and increasingly that's like every business with respect to Amazon, and they all went through your back door. Yeah. Like you could learn a lot. Man, our, our, our mutual friend, Tom Merritt, I'm sure is just is just so disappointed that we are engaging in such conspiratorial thinking. Uh, this is like I can just hear <laughs> I can just hear his voice like, well, how do you know? I know. All right. So there we go. I'm, we I'm, don't know. We don't know, I'm Tom. We don't know. Like a baby wannabe robber baron is the first <laughs> thing I would do. Like if you left me alone in your house and you were like, this closet is where I keep all the good stuff. Don't look in there. 
I'm going to look. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, <laughs> all right, real quick, Apple. Uh, Apple was on there, but unlike uh, uh, Google and Microsoft and Amazon, they have not gotten into the server game. Unlike <laughs> Facebook and Google, despite the fact that I think they bought a mobile ad company years and years ago they never really did anything with it and they have now famously kind of made part of their branding that they don't want to be the advertising company so why are they there they're there because of the app store and the fact that the app store although there are others and other places where you can get apps and although android is bigger by market share than apple's ios the app store is where developers make most of their money. Yeah. And Apple sets the rules that frankly, the rest of the industry follows. And so even though they can say there's competition, the competition is all doing exactly what Apple does because Apple is like the pricing marker. Yeah. So Apple, um, the argument basically is that because Apple charges a 30% commission on sales through the app store, digital sales. This is why, for example, you can't buy a Kindle book on the Amazon app. Yeah. If you're on an iOS device, it's because Amazon wisely doesn't want to pay Apple 30% of the cost of that Kindle book. And this is, so this is a pretty cut and dried antitrust case in the sense that it's like, there's a 30% commission there's lock-in for both consumers and developers and iPhone users sued and under antitrust law and said, we are experiencing consumer harm. These prices are being passed along to consumers and that that is an unfair use of monopoly power. And in May of last year, the Supreme Court ruled that that class action suit could go forward. So let's start with Apple and then real quick, go back down the line. Uh, it seems to me as somebody that has watched this industry for a while that all of these companies are, have been putting themselves in position to do something in response to antitrust stuff, but they are not going to do anything until the government makes them. Do you think that we will see change? Let's start with Apple and their pricing in, in the App Store. Do, do you think that we are going to see uh, a change from them? Uh, without being forced, you mean? No, no, no. Let's say, yeah, let's say that, that, that <laughs> there is something, and uh, like it just—it seems to me that they got their go bag ready, uh, and 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 everything. Right. But it's harder for Google with advertising because that is Google. But uh, uh, for like for Apple, Apple could say, despite the fact that they make more on web services now than they ever have, and that is a huge part of it. They could say, all right, we'll do some tiered thing, like we kind of started doing with uh, a video anyway. Uh, uh, that, that there are they're they're prepared to do givebacks if the government forces them to. Do you think that's likely? I don't think it is likely that the government will force ah, any change there we anytime go. soon. <laughs> yes. Well, then that brings yeah. us to the big coup de gras, which is <laughs> can <laughs> this uh, Congress that can't shoot straight. Uh, uh, do anything and, and let alone the, the, the Department of Justice. I don't think I should be clear. I don't think the federal government will force change from Apple. I think it is possible that European Union regulators could force change from Apple and all of these companies. And I think that the thing to keep your eye on 
going forward with Google specifically and immediately, and then these other companies as well, is the states. The state attorneys general are mounting some pretty aggressive cases against these companies. If you really saw a California or a New York come in with something akin to the California privacy law uh, and really pursue a successful antitrust action that would set the rules of the road for the rest of the country and the world, that's where I think you will see some change. I, I really, I really would frankly prefer it if Congress would just work on uh, COVID stuff. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, uh, uh, I mean, yeah. Uh, uh, so I don't. I, not only do I not think that they are going to, you know, go hard on this one. The sure. FTC might do some stuff around Google. I don't even want him to right now. Well, I mean, there is that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're we're now we're now past the point where you know again the police reform bill uh, or any any action on police reform, despite the fact that there was bipartisan motion on it. Ah, eh, no, forget about it. Uh, the COVID uh-huh. stuff, they had months to figure it out. Uh, eh, whatever. So yeah, you know that is uh, they Congress went on recess. They took a three day weekend, Justin. They're very tuckered out, though, Maul. You know, they're 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 really you know they work so hard. They actually came back from vacation. You know, they had a really really rough five days. Um, uh, where they could so not true. they could not agree with each other, and uh, you know, and then they get they get so yeah. tuckered out. They got to come back in, on Monday. They're just tired babies. They're just little puppies. They just need <laughs> nappities. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, I'll tell you what. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, uh, for joining us and uh, 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 laying all this out, because I I know that it's likely going to be something that'll be on the mind of people uh, for the next few few months. Although I think that you've actually given a a really good uh, primer on look, look to the states. That's where this options go. All all this stuff is going to happen. Then, of course, with any kind of antitrust, Europe is you know, they're always the first movers on all this. Oh yeah. Europe came for Google just this week today, I think on Thursday said we're investigating that whole Fitbit comp Fitbit acquisition because the companies, I mean, it tells you how worried they really are about this because in the weeks leading up to this hearing, almost every one of these companies has been on a buying spree. Apple has bought like six companies since the pandemic started. Yeah, They are not worried and they're telegraphing that pretty strongly. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't, again, I don't think any of them, I think they're all prepared to do things. None of them are going to do jack until they, they are forced to. And, you know, you can make an argument for why would they, you know, because why they, would they, yeah, because they don't well, they know. shouldn't. That would admit wrongdoing. Yeah, I mean, they exactly. Right. Yeah. They're in a weird position now where they can't. They can't. And it's like, they don't even know if they were to do something, if that would be sufficient. Right. Like, like there's no guarantee that they would even that that would even be something that that would be looked at as as enough. Right. So. Oh, all right. Uh, Molly, uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Of course, uh, Marketplace uh, make me smart. It's a thing. Anything else? That that seems like plenty. I also am tuckered out just hearing that. Justin, what a delight. Thanks for having me. I love oh, it. Oh, no. it's It's been a long time coming and uh, glad to have you on. Take care. And that wraps us up for today. Again, a big thank you to Molly Wood, our guest, talking all about tech and the looming antitrust issues. 
A thank you to everybody who supports us at TakePoliticsSeriously.com, including our Titanic $10 tier, Modesto Zone, Logan Cisco, NH Plumpkin, Chad, Headphones Neil, Water Ice Scoop, MacBook Pro, Dallas Danger Daler, Middle Age Mike, DTNS, Hack 5, Brad, Utah, Jimmy Montana, Frozen Summer, Zach and Cheese, Captain Bunzo, Zombie Doc, Berkeley Steven, your boy Craig, TroubleFilm.com, Robert, Tallyman, D, Laser Eye, Poop My Pants, Just Another Pilot, Alex Mitchell, Severio, Martin, Alec, Government Unfiltered, Spawn! Jerry, Andres, Archie, Jay Milius, The Jen, The Crap in My Pants, Olin and Angela, DL, Brian, I Poop My Pants.com, Miranda, Janelle, Robert, Glenn Wolfbrand, Chili Scoop, Dustin, Richard, Random Complexity, J Pink, and Andrew Maine. You want to join their ranks? You head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. I want everybody to have a good weekend. I might get that beep announcement on Saturday. I think it might happen. Oh, well. Either way, we're going to wrap everything up on Monday. We're going to be back with you on Wednesday. And until then, I would like to remind each and every one of you that there are some shows that talk about politics, still more that talk about politics, and one I saw the other day that talked about politics, but this is the only show that dares talk about Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>